Good morning, you guys. Thanks for braving the elements to be here today. It is good to see your faces. If you haven't yet, please open a Bible to Psalm 73. Uh, We're going to be looking through the entire psalm together in our time this morning. Uh, We started last week uh, to walk through six different psalms. We're in this series in the psalms and uh, just called it The Problem of Pain, stealing the title from C.S. Lewis. Uh, There's not much more to it than that. I really hate coming up with titles. It's probably my least favorite part of writing a sermon or coming up with a series that we're going through. I probably put too much thought into it and you guys don't even remember them anyway, so no one even cares. But um, nonetheless, we are doing this. We're walking through, looking at how the Psalms, which are God's people's prayer book, song book, that people would pray these prayers. They would sing these songs, whether in private or in public, gathering together, remembering the attributes and character of God, what He has done over time, but also they express... Uh, emotion, right? Real human experience uh, that happens in our lives. And, and so the psalmists are often expressing various emotions along the way, and we can learn a lot from these psalms. Last week, we looked um, at sorrow and grief and depression in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. Uh, next week, we're going to look at anxiety. Um, and, and then in, in, in February, uh, we're going to be looking at anger. We're going to look at addiction, and uh, we will look at exhaustion and God's invitation for us to rest. Um, But today, uh, we're looking at doubt. We're looking at doubt. Um, Doubt, I don't know if you think about it, doubt often is a symptom. It's an expression of pain that we go through. I wonder if you think that a Christian can truly be a Christian and be a faithful Christian Uh, One with genuine faith and yet still struggle with doubt. Do you think that's possible? To be a genuine Christian struggling in some sense, but yet truly be a Christian. I think it's important for us to see that the Bible acknowledges that doubt is is just a, a natural reality of our human condition, right? We are creatures. God is a creator, right? He's the creator, We are limited, He is limitless. We are finite, He is infinite. And so it makes sense, right, that we live our lives and things happen where we pause and step back and we're like, what was that? That doesn't fit into my categories. How does that relate to this reality, this truth that I've been told is actually real? And so you see various people throughout the Bible, we could list many of them today, but I think probably the most uh, famous example is Thomas, one of the 12 disciples who followed Jesus closely, who watched him be crucified and buried. And then uh, three days later, he's hearing some of the disciples and others talking about how they've seen Jesus, that he's been resurrected, he's risen. And, and what does Thomas famously say? He says, I, I will not believe unless I can see him. But not just see him, it's pretty invasive what he says. He goes, unless I could put my hands in his scars, right, in the nail holes, right? And what does Jesus do? He shows up, and does he go, man, just have more faith. What's wrong with you? No, he, he has mercy on him, right? He says, come here, put your hands here, right? We read in Jude, chapter 1, verse 22, Jude tells us to have mercy on those who doubt, Have mercy on those who doubt. And today in Psalm 73, we encounter a man named Asaph, who was basically a worship leader. 
He, he was a man who wrote 12 different psalms in the Bible. He's famously attributed to performing at the dedication of Solomon's temple, which was like an iconic event in Old Testament uh, Jewish history. And yet here this morning, as we see in Psalm 73, even he struggled with doubt. I think there's really two options that most of us think are our options for when it comes to a season of doubting. There's really two roads that we feel like we can take that most of us end up taking actually. One of those roads is like this religious path to doubt where we just look at people who doubt or if we begin to feel any sense of doubt and uncertainty, we just tell ourselves, don't doubt, right? You can't doubt, you shouldn't doubt. And so we, we live our whole lives based on this reality or this hope that we can have ultimate certainty and conviction 100% of the time. And anytime we face uncertain or unwanted circumstances or just unclear realities, we should just suppress those thoughts and tell each other, don't doubt, don't doubt. It's like a religious way of, of handling it. But then there's like a, an, another way, right? The other end of the spectrum, you could say. There's, a, there's like a secular, modern-day sort of way that people deal with their doubt, and that is to think that nothing can be certain, right? that everything is up for grabs, that you should question everything, and if you even claim to know anything, then you haven't been very intellectually rigorous enough. Right? You've come to your conclusions. You haven't remained open to the possibilities. That's not wise, people would say. And so we live in a day and age where people like enshrine doubt, right? They enthrone it to where we live lives or we're told to live lives where you're always browsing and never buying, right? You're like the person like me at Barnes and Nobles going through going, this would be nice, this would be nice. And you look about and then you leave, right? You're always browsing and never buying. So, so most of us live in these two different spectrums. We live with this sense where we're uneasy with doubt. You're not supposed to question doubt. And it creates this culture of fear, right? You better appear like you've got it all figured out, like you have it all together. And many churches are like this. Or there's this secular view, right, where you enthrone it, where it's virtuous to question all the time. There are no answers. And guys, it is no secret, right, that we are living in a day where people are constantly talking about this idea, or at least because of social media, it's made it very plain and obvious and probably encouraged it all the more to witness various people going through phases or seasons of life that is now called deconstruction, right? Where they've grown up in some faith system in their family and so that faith system was already constructed for them and so something happens in their life and it caused them to question what they now know is true. And what do they do? They begin to tear everything down to the studs and say, I'm gonna rebuild it again, a more faithful version of faith. But often what you see when people rebuild that structure is nothing that resembles biblical faith at all. There should be remodeling that happens in our faith, for sure. There are things that we can believe that actually aren't true, that the Bible speaks to very plainly. But nonetheless, we are living in a day that enshrines it, enthrones skepticism. And so we live in the tension of these two, and many have been hurt by both ends. And what I want you to see is that Psalm 73 suggests that there really is another way to consider your doubts. There's a unique approach that we have here that allows for acknowledgement of our doubts to go, hey, I'm really wrestling with this. But in contrast to other views too, there is also a call to believe. There's also a call to believe. And so the first thing that I think our psalm is showing us this morning is it's showing us what doubt feels like 
what doubt feels like. Look with me in verses one through three as we see Asaph start off here in his song. He says this, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So when you look at verse one here, this doesn't appear to be a man who's doubting. He seems pretty confident, right? God is good to Israel. God is good to his people, you could say. To those who are pure in heart, which isn't just a reference to someone's morality or someone's cleanliness. It's actually more true to say this is talking about an undivided heart, a heart that's solely devoted to God. This is a true statement that he just declares. It doesn't seem like he's a man in doubting, does it? So this is significant because this is showing you that Asaph is actually now on the other side of his doubting. He's gone through a season of doubting and now he's standing on the other side of it, penning this song, and this is the conclusion that he's come to. God is good to his people, to those who are undivided in their hearts. He's walked through it and this is his new setting. So what happened to him? What happened to him that led him to that point? Well, you look at verse two. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. So we have an image here of what doubt looks like. It's a metaphor, it's a really good image. It's, it's this image of losing your foothold, losing your balance. The, the word often uh, carries with it this idea of double vision, okay? This idea of, 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 of vertigo, right? Have you ever had vertigo? I've had vertigo, it's really fun, okay? Right, it's kind of like spiritual vertigo. You're walking along, everything seems so sure, something seems so certain, but then something happens in your life that causes you to go, wait a minute, right? I thought things were so plain. I put my foot here and that's how this feels. I put my foot here, that's how this feels. But something's happened, I can't see as clearly as I used to see. That's exactly what this image of doubt feels like. That's the image, but we also have a word a word for what doubt feels like, and that's in verse three. What does he say? For I was envious. I was envious. Why does he almost fall? What's happening in his life? What does doubt feel like? It's counterintuitive. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. It feels like envy, is what he says. See what he's saying here? Envy is essentially just when you want for yourself something that someone else has that you think you're more deserving of, right? That's envy. And so Asaph, right, here in his own words, he's being brutally honest, right? These are canonized words in the Bible. And he's sitting here saying, yeah, I was envious. I struggle with envy. Other people have something that I don't feel like I have and I think I'm more deserving of it. And so what happened, as envy fills his heart, doubt creeps in. Guys, this is so important because doubt is rarely just a rational or intellectual exercise that we struggle through. It often comes through these double vision experiences where there's something that's not happening in our lives in an experiential kind of way that begins to sprout these feelings of doubt, these thoughts of doubt. 
I mean, this is exactly why in the gospel accounts you could see Jesus perform miracles and do all sorts of things. And even in the midst of people seeing him do stuff, some people believe him and some people doubt him. Right? So it's not just the evidence that's in question here. I don't know if you've ever processed your doubts in this way. When you've gone through a season of struggle and processing where you're like, what's really going on inside of me? Do you feel like this image represents that season well? Have you ever thought about maybe there is envy in your heart in some way? This is what doubt feels like. It's like if you've ever been sick and you're struggling to figure out what's wrong with you and you, you finally go to a doctor and the doctor says you're feeling this, right? And you're feeling this, right? And you're like, yes, yes. And they go, it's this. There's such a relief almost to put a, a word to what it is that you're feeling, to what it is that you're going through. And that's exactly what the psalmist is helping us do here. This is what it feels like. Well, what creates that doubt? Well, what often creates that doubt? We see him elaborate on this in verses 4 down through verse 14 and 15. He says, for they have no pangs until death. This, this verse 3 is like a hinge verse. It belongs in the first couple verses, but you need it for verse 4 and following. He says, I was envious, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches." Now, based upon what he's observed, what does he say about himself? All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Every morning. Well, what's, he, what's he doing here? He, he's laying out his envy about what he's seeing that other people are experiencing that he thinks he's more deserving of. If you think about it, he's struggling with that age-old question. You know, why do bad things happen to good people? But actually, in the inverse, he's saying, why do good things happen to bad people? That's what he's wrestling with. And so verse 4 begins this rant, right? You've ever just needed a rant or vent your frustration? Yeah, doing a journal or something. That's at least what he does here. But everybody sings this song now, I guess. But nonetheless, he rants his frustration for 11 verses, And then he gives this summary statement in verse 12, and he gives this sweeping generalization to his doubt, to the things that cause him to begin to doubt. He's going, look at all these people. They're wicked, which is just a term he's using to describe people who don't believe in God. They don't know God. They don't follow God. They don't care to follow God. They're living their lives the way that they want. They're just doing whatever they wish. And look, they're using people along the way. Look at the way they're dressed, he says. It's it's such a poetic image, right? He says, you know, uh, they have uh, pride as their necklace. Life is all about them and they're just showing it off, right? Their clothes are violence, right? They're toppling whoever gets in their way to get what it is that they actually want. But look, he's like, they just 
they're pretty sleek bodies, but they're also like pretty comfortable and at ease all the time. So they look good. They're satisfied. They're comfortable. They're enjoying life. They're just, you know, strutting about, even looking at God and saying, can God really even know anything? And he's sitting here watching all these people. And what is he doing? What's he doing? He's trying to be faithful, right? What a vivid image. Look at all these people just prospering, never affected by the changes in the economy. They don't seem to age or gain weight. They seem good at everything they touch. Everyone loves them. And they just mock God, right? In verse 12, he summarizes it saying, you've got a good life, right? You've got a great life. That's his conclusion. But then his is what in verse 13 and 15? I've toiled my whole life and I've got nothing to show for it. I've been doing hard things, denying myself certain things, trusting in God, right? I have all this religious activity and I'm not fulfilled, right? What is going on here? I thought God hates the proud but is near to the humble. That's that spiritual double vision sort of stuff, isn't it? So how, how is this working out in the world? I, mean, I think we can have multiple responses to his statement about his own life. All day long, I've, I've kept my hands clean and innocent. So I've kept my heart clean. We can look at this in multiple ways. We can see it from a compassionate response, right? But we can see that this is often what creates doubt. It's believing in God and seeking to follow him, yet feeling like you're losing and everyone else is winning. It's feeling like you're empty and everybody else around you seems full. Or you're on the outside and everybody else is on the inside. Right? Your faith can begin to feel like a scam in these seasons. This is what he's doing. He's seeing everyone prospering and he doesn't feel like he is and so he creates doubt. But I think there's also a challenging response that needs to be given here to Asaph and to us. Uh, there's a commentator named Derek Kidner. He points this out well when he looks at what Asaph says about himself, he says he was self-centered. All his activity wasn't getting him what he was after. Do you see how self-serving his activity was? In his certainty about his faith, there's a mixing of motives. There's a measure of self-interest. Hear this. He says this. He says he was going to God for something other than God. Right? He wanted what they had and he thought God was going to give it to him through his religious activity. He had built his life on what he wanted from God and not in God alone. It's ironic that he's judging these people who are rich and powerful and oppressive and they, he despises them because they use others to get what they, what they want. But he was using morality to get what he wanted. That's what he's doing. And maybe God was actually at work in this whole thing all along. Maybe our seasons of doubting can often be filled with times of God waking us up to our divided hearts, right? To our false understandings of who God is. To maybe the ways that we've applied his promises to us in a way that he's never promised us. I mean, you might be here this morning and you don't really care too much about gaining or losing weight or being at ease or... Um, 
health and wealth and that kind of thing, what Asaph is concerned about. But, but this idea of doubt hits you in a social way. I'd say for most of us, this idea of social prosperity, not just health and wealth prosperity, is what in our day and age really hits us, really causes us to begin to doubt. Right? There's an idea of emotional prosperity in our society where doubt can be created through the result of maybe relational tension or maybe isolation or rejection or the feeling of wanting to have friendship and community with people. So this often plays out that like the crowd or the people that you want to be in relationship with, maybe they go along with a different ideology, a different thing that's clothed as truth, and you know God has said, this is what's true about me. This is what's true about you. This is how you should live. And you see all these other people going along with something else. And so you feel that social prosperity pull. You're like, I don't want to be on the outside looking in. We, we can think that if we follow God, that he is going to put us right in the center of community. He's going to put us right in the center of influence. And so we go, man, if I believe in God and that's going to create isolation or disparaging comments from others, do I really believe that he's right? He wouldn't want me to be isolated from other people in society. He wouldn't want me to socially have to suffer because I don't believe what they believe, right? This can hit us in that way more than any, I think. I'll be honest with you, uh, doubt is something I went through um, when I was much younger, uh, when I was in high school, college. I mean, there's even other seasons where I've struggled with this, even as a pastor. But when I remember when I was younger in my teenage years and, and early college years, I, I grew up in a faith that um, I heard over and over again that Jesus said, if you follow me, you will have joy and joy to the full. And so I interpreted that however I wanted to. And yet when I would go to school, I hated school because I felt lonely, because I felt isolated, because I didn't feel like I was set up to participate in the other sorts of social networks in the way that I would have to participate to be a part of those things. And high school felt like everything to me. You know, college felt like everything, like this is the end of the world, right? And this, this is my life forever. I couldn't see past it. And so what happened? I began to doubt God. I began to go, man, God, if you really think, if you really say that following you leads to joy, I don't feel like this is joy at all. I feel like I'm suffering. And so I rejected him. I ran as far from him as I could. I hated God in that season of my life. If someone quoted me a Bible verse, I would just get angry inside because it felt like it was ruining my life. It was all the social stuff, really, that I think we all can experience. I'm sitting here looking around my high school and early college going, it looks like they're prospering, and I'm not. So I doubted. I mean, you might not be like me, but you might think, God, I thought you were loving. You know, why then would this boyfriend or girlfriend not become my husband? All, all these other people are married, right? Why not me? God, I thought you cared about me, that you were powerful and intimate. Why, why did my mother die, right? They have their mother. God, why will you not let me have children? That's a good desire, right? Other people have children. 
Why would you take away my athletic ability? My other friend, he, you didn't take his away. Or, or why didn't I not get into that internship or that school? Or why did I lose my job? I, I thought you wanted me to provide for my family, right? We go through seasons of life that disorient us. C.S. Lewis went through these sorts of seasons as well, and he famously said the danger in that season for him was not to conclude that there is no God at all, but he said he began to fear that this was what God was really like. That God in these seasons was basically being revealed to him as someone that he didn't really actually know, that he was worse, that he wasn't good. And so he famously said grief didn't cause him to doubt that God was real, but to believe strange things about God. That's what caused it. Guys, doubt is often created through comparison. It's created through comparison. So that's what doubt feels like. That's often what creates doubt in the psalmist. But, but how do we walk through our doubts? We get hope. We get hope here. We're longing for it, right? Verse 16, what does he say? But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, God. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me through your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. There's a big shift that happens here in the psalm. What does he say? Everything is this one reality for him until verse 17 was to say, until something happened. Where did he go to process his doubts? Where did he go? Doubt is not something you've got to live with forever. It's something you actually can get through. And so the first thing that I want us to see here is the psalmist tells you, know where you need to go to get perspective. Where do you need to go to get perspective? We have this shift. Where does he go? He goes to the sanctuary of God. That's what he says. He goes to a place of worship. He's surrounding himself with believers. He's singing the songs, praying the prayers, hearing God's word. He's engaging. He's not just thinking his way through his doubt. He's worshiping his way through his doubt. Do you see this? This is interesting because a lot of people think that our doubts can be solved by just new information. Right? But he's dealing with his doubts through worship. Many of us, when we go through a season of doubt, you will stop praying. You will stop communing with God. You stop opening your Bibles, and you're just waiting in some passive way for God to miraculously show up and perform a miracle. But God is still speaking. There's a shift that takes place. It's, he's isolated himself maybe from God, and if you do that, that'll cause you, if you isolate yourself from God, it'll cause you to see the world, to see that comparison as the dominant reality in your life. 
But when he went to a place of worship, he begins to realize that God is the dominant reality in his life. God is no longer this object to put under the microscope, this object of speculation. He becomes the one that's to be worshiped in his mind. So he goes to the sanctuary. Right, this, this could refer to a temple or a tabernacle for him. It was just a place where God's presence was. You see, it was when he went to this place, and it was only when he went to this place that he got perspective. What's the perspective he got? Well, the first thing you see in verse 21 and 22, he's got a new perspective on himself. It's a little bit different than verse 13 and 14. He goes, man, I've been like an animal towards God, like unthinking, just brutal, right? God has been on trial in my life, basically, and now he sees how he's been acting. But what's the second thing? He gets another perspective on the people that he's envied. He gets a whole different perspective on the people that he's envied. You see in verse 18 through 20, and then again in verse 27, they have all this stuff, right? All this wealth, all this fame, maybe popularity, social connections, whatever it might be, and it seems so real. It seems so lasting. But then he goes to the sanctuary, and what does he say it is? Verse 20, it's like a dream. It's like a dream. One of you guys, I don't dream much, okay? Um, but uh, I, if I ever do, it's usually a bad dream, okay? Like it's usually one of those dreams where I'm about to preach in 30 seconds, and I go, oh my gosh, I forgot to study. I don't even know what I'm gonna say right now. It's that kind of dream, you know? It's like weird stuff that you don't even care think about, you know, in your life. But nonetheless, those are the kind of dreams to where when I wake up, I go, oh, it was just a dream, right? But this is not that kind of dream. This is saying that all those people that just live however they want, they try to find their wealth, their value, and everything in this world, someday God will return, and he will judge the world and they, everybody will wake up. And they're going, oh no, it was a dream, right? It's like one of those dreams that you have every once in a while that you're like, I don't wanna wake up from this dream. But you're going to get roused by God, the living God who made you and knows you, who's righteous and just, who's holy, who is right to judge us for the ways that we've treated him, for the ways that we've just put him on trial all the time and said, I know better than you do, God. He is right to come and do that. And so he skips ahead to the end of life and he goes, man, I'm gonna play the long game. That's what I'm gonna do. He's realized that his present reality is not the future reality. When you're living in your present, it feels like that is forever. Like when I was in high school, like if you're in high school or you're in school and you feel that pressure now, know that high school is not forever, right? You gotta know that. The season of your life you're in is not forever. Your present reality is not the future reality. And so he goes to the sanctuary, he gets this perspective, you guys, and this is showing us the perspective, the place that we need to go to get that perspective, which means what? That the church should be the best environment to process doubt. The church should be the best environment to process doubt. And I don't know if we've created that kind of space. 
because we say, don't doubt, don't doubt, don't doubt. And we're afraid that if anybody processes doubt that we're just going to enthrone it. And that's not at all what we're trying to do, right? But it's got to be that space because that's where Asaph gets his perspective, isn't it? That's where he gets it. Right, so know where to go to get perspective. But secondly, how do you walk through your doubt? How do you get out of it? The best way to put it is feel for his hand. Feel for God's hand. Because look at what it says in verse 23 through 26 and in verse 28. What does he say? Again, God, I acted like an animal in verse 21 and 22, but here he's going, God, you treated me like a son. He's realized that in spite of his doubt and self-interest, God holds him by his right hand. It doesn't say that he holds God's hand, but that God holds his hand. You see that? He was on treacherous ground. He got the spiritual vertigo, but God had his hand. So he didn't fall. You see that? Right? You can walk through so many seasons, you're like, how is God holding my hand? I don't feel like I'm holding his. I can't feel it. That's what doubt can feel like. I, I propose to you that, that it's a different kind of handshake, maybe. This, this helps me, at least. Okay? I'm really bad at shaking hands, to be honest with you. Um, I'm kind of the person I walk up to you and I try to keep eye contact and go for your handshake and I'll miss or grab a fingertip or, you know, it's just really awkward and I'm like, please don't judge me by my handshake. You know, everyone says a good handshake you can judge somebody by, please don't judge me, okay? Um, But nonetheless, right, it's because I don't want to look down, right? And so I've always wished that we would do like the macho man, like Thor handshake, you know, where you just kind of go like that, you know? Be a lot easier, harder to miss, that sort of thing. But I feel like this is a better representation of this kind of hand-holding that, that we're seeing here in this psalm, right? Because he's going through all this season where he's like, God, where are you? And he's sort of let go as he's wandered about his life, looking around the world saying, I wish I had what they had. I'm more deserving of that sort of thing. I thought if I followed you, God, that meant this for me, that sort of thing. But all of a sudden, he goes to the sanctuary and he sees that God's been holding on to him all along. That's why I'm saying feel for his hand. He hasn't left you, right? He's still there. He's patient. He is so patient. I don't know if you just sat there and wondered at the patience of God in your life. It is remarkable. It is remarkable. This is why he says, my heart may fail, right? I can let go, but God doesn't let go, right? He is my strength, and he is my portion. So he's switched the comparison now, right? He used to look out and see what they had, right? And he's like, I wish I had that. But now what does he say? God is my portion, right? God is my wealth, is what he's saying. They have all their stuff that they're putting all their hope in, and someday they're going to wake up and poof, it'll be gone like a dream. But I have something now that is also my future reality, right? You can't take this thing away from me like a dream, Everything has shifted. He just wants God. Do you see it? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's the place he's wound up. There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. This is how you know you've come through your doubt, you guys. It's when you end up with not all your questions being satisfied, but you wind up in a place where God is your satisfaction, right? you're finally there. You're like, I don't have all the answers. 
but I've got God, right? God will never let go of you. Is that what you want to hear? Is that what you want to hear? How can you know this? Well, you have one and a savior named Jesus, who was one who kept his heart clean, who was completely and utterly innocent, who served his father faithfully every day of his life, who never looked out and said, I wish I had that instead. And he served him so faithfully that it drove him to a cross. He always felt in his humanity the father's hand but it was there on the cross that he was crucified because of your sin for all the times, right? That we just think we know best, that we go our own way. He was crucified. He hung there for you. And he cries out, why have you forsaken me? What does that mean? In a metaphorical way, you could say. He's saying, where's the hand of God? All he's known his whole life was, you were continually with me. And it was there. It was there that he went through that so that you would know that no matter what you go through, no matter how you doubt in your life, you could know that he is holding on to you. Because what does Jesus say in John chapter 10? I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Not like the people in verse 27. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. God is bigger than your doubts. He is holding on to you. That's why we sing the great hymn, The Solid Rock, when darkness seems to hide his face, I rest in his unchanging grace. We feel for his hand. We feel for his hand. Well, guys, where do we go from here? Well, I'll say the same thing I said last week. Don't fake it till you make it, right? Don't fake it till you make it. And what that means is that we should not exalt certainty, right? We can't be a church that exalts certainty. If the the place where people should carry and walk through their doubts is the church, right, is the sanctuary of God where the Spirit of God dwells, then we shouldn't exalt certainty where we create this plastic and fake culture that's just fearful, that's like, don't don't say anything, right? If you have a question, just stuff it, right? We're all, everyone's got it figured out and you feel like you're the only one that has any questions. We, We don't want to exalt certainty, right? You will have many people that are often They they up and leave their faith because they didn't feel like there was any space to wrestle with their questions. So so we need to listen to people and, and legitimize some things that they're struggling with, but then we point them back to God. We point them back to the truth. We don't condemn them just like Jesus gave people space too. We do what Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. If you're a parent and you are raising a child who's going through a doubting time. We'd be patient, right? We, we trust in God that he's holding on, right? I think life groups is a great place where we should be able to process these things. So we shouldn't exalt certainty, but lastly, I'll say this to you. We shouldn't exalt skepticism, right? We don't enthrone it like our culture does. We don't go, you're not a, a legitimate, faithful Christian if you don't have thousands of questions or something like that. We're not afraid of our doubts, but we do take them very seriously. 
Because you remember the serpent said to Eve in the garden things like, did God really say? Did God really say? Right? Our doubts should be taken very seriously. And maybe consider that personal sin could be a possible cause of your doubt. I mean, that's what we see here in Asaph. He's confessing his sin. Ask yourself this question. Is my doubt an effort to learn and understand or is it a veiled attempt to justify my disobedience? Is my doubting an effort to learn and understand or is it a veiled attempt to justify my rebellion against God? That's a really important question to ask. As there is a God we can know deeply and personally because we have a savior named Jesus who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I have made him known. So we run to him with our questions. We run to him with our doubts. You're not alone, you don't have to fake it till you make it. Pain brings doubt for many of us, but there is hope for the doubting. And Psalm 73 helps us on that way. So let's all bow our heads and close our eyes as we go into our time of response this morning. Just right now in this moment, I want you to, maybe, maybe there are things in your life that are big questions that you've been afraid to ask or things that you've kept secret or hidden. And I just want you to, right now, maybe in this space, just kind of make those known to God. Just admit those things to God and trust that he's bigger. Maybe ask God to put in your mind a person that you could process your questions with. Or maybe right now you're thinking about how you've used doubting to just run from God. Maybe you're thinking about how you're always browsing and never buying. Just in this time, make that clear to God. Just verbalize that to God. He's big enough. God, this morning we come to you and we confess that we do not understand how and why everything happens the way it does. And we confess that, Lord, there are many experiences that we have that often create this unsettledness in our walking with you. God, we pray this morning that you would meet us where we are, that you would minister to us by the power of your spirit. God, that you would point us back to your truth, that we would keep our Bibles open, that we would keep showing up, that we would find a good community, Lord, just to walk with us. Help us to be that community. Help all the churches in Redlands and throughout the world, Lord, be a place where we so trust in your truth, believe in your truth, or that we know that, 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 that we can just walk with you together as we look at it. We thank you for the certainty of who you are and the goodness of who you are and, the, and how just you are. We thank you for the cross and the resurrection. Lord, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for 
for being a savior who no one can snatch us out of your hand. God, help us to feel for your hand today, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.